Thanks for tuning in to the Glossy Beauty Podcast. I'm your host, Priya Rao, Executive Editor at Glossy. And today's guest is Michelle Brousset, the CEO and founder of Waldencast. Welcome, Michelle. Thank you, Priya. Excited to be here. Michelle, the big news of the week is obviously the SPAC news, which happened last week. Um, You know, you're not the only player in beauty to experiment with this vehicle. Uh, So tell me a little bit about what was interesting and intriguing to you. Yeah, no, it was an exciting week, as you can imagine. We we had the IPO of the SPAC, uh, the World and Gas Acquisition Corp. Uh, it is, uh, we were had great demand from investors. We ended up exercising the, the upsize option, and we had a IPO of $345 million, which is complemented with up to $333 million of um, forward purchase agreements committed by us as sponsors, as well as other investors that um, are long-term strategic investors that want to participate. Before, you know, we kind of lose some of our listeners on the more consumer end, would you describe and explain what a SPAC is for our audience? Because you're actually the first person on our show to talk about this. Yes, of course. So a SPAC stands for Special Purpose Acquisition Company. It's essentially a company without operations. It's a company that is built and created to uh, do acquisitions. So uh, the way the vehicle works, and it's a vehicle that has been around for about 20 years. Uh, it's become really popular, becoming quite popular over, the, I would say, the past two years. And as you said, there's a number of, of people that are kind of working in, the, in that space. And, and the reason for it is because it's a very fast, um, convenient, as well as quite company-friendly way to get uh, funding and access to public markets. So what it is, is is an acquisition company that is a company that raises funds from investors with the sole purpose of doing an acquisition and taking that company public. Got it. So Michelle, one of the things that I thought was so interesting about this is when I first started reading about SPACs in this era of, of, of them, not the reverse merger of, you know, the 2000s, um, was that they were so disparate. You know, my husband was telling me about one with the Boston Red Sox and some soccer team in the UK, which I guess you could say was sports, but there was a lot of other things going on. Um, and, you know, I think with you, what you're trying to do and what some of the other people in beauty are trying to do is really kind of recreate a beauty holding company company, correct? Like to compete with, say, a Unilever or an Estee Lauder or a L'Oreal. Could you tell me a little bit about that? No, I think you got it exactly right, Priya. Um, I mean, there's a SPACs and a SPACs. And I think traditionally a SPAC has been a vehicle that was, I'm going to generalize and, and, and hear that was typically put together by a a group of talented finance team, if you want, deal makers that were looking to help companies uh, go public. So they are relatively, it's a vehicle to help companies in a quite expeditious way go public. Now that vehicle has evolved and certainly what we are trying to do as Waldencast, we didn't start with, let's do a SPAC. We started with what, with what, with what was our original vision, which is to build a, a best-in-class global beauty and wellness multi-brand platform. And we wanted to do it is by create, nurture, and scale these kind of new generation, next generation of conscious purpose-driven brands. So we started that with an objective. And then we came back to a SPAC as just one of the vehicles uh, to allow us to achieve that objective. So what we are really looking to build is, is the SPAC and the FPA and potentially the first acquisition we would do is just the first step in what we hope are a series of subsequent acquisitions as well as development of own brands to create a 
global best-in-class beauty and wellness uh, operating company. So it's a little bit different than most, most SPACs, uh, in, both in terms of the objective of what we're trying to achieve, as well as uh, we're operators. You know, we come from a long background of operating and running businesses at a scale. Um, and also the other thing that is peculiar is this, this forward purchase agreement, this commitment of capital in which we are putting our own skin in the game to create this this new company right next to our investors. That's a great segue because I know, obviously, I know you well and people in the beauty industry, you have a, 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 a reputation that precedes yourself. But tell me a little bit about how you kind of got into beauty and what your career looked like prior to Waldencast. Yeah, no, of course. I started Waldencast exactly two years ago. I founded Waldencast two years ago with uh, my co-founder, Hin Septi. And um, I did that after 25 years of just basically running global consumer brands. Uh, I was most recently before Waldencast, I was group president of uh, the L'Oreal Consumer Products Division in North America. Before that, I was uh, CEO, managing director of L'Oreal UK and so on and so forth. I was with Procter & Gamble well, as well uh, for a long time, uh, 14 years or so. So overall, kind of 25 years running, running these type of businesses. And... Um, but always, I think, after all that time with both a, a personal dream of being an, an entrepreneur, creating this new generation, new way of, of, um, of creating and nurturing brands. So that's a bit my, my history. I come from a relatively um, long, uh, long career running and building consumer brands in North America, in Europe, in Latin America, etc., Obviously, you know, you come from a very traditional background as well. And it seems that, you know, some of the the brands that you've been working with specifically on the venture side of the business have been these new guard of brands, maybe brands that are smaller than an acquisition at a L'Oreal or a Unilever or a Procter & Gamble. So tell me what was attractive about that, starting so early with these brands like Francisco Costa's line or uh, Kaiser Weiss, which is a little bit older, but still in the long, in the grand scheme of things, it's only about 10 years old. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, again, it's, it's like many things. We started, we started with a dream, which is to create this big uh, kind of global, company. Um, but you start as an entrepreneur, because I'm an entrepreneur just like founders are, um, start where you can start at the beginning. So where we started is two things. One is investing in early stage brands like Carewise, like C16 Bio, like uh, Manuel in the UK, like Salvi in Brazil, etc., etc., in which we were... Uh, not only provide capital, but also provide operational support and expertise to help these brands scale. We have different ways of, of supporting each of these different companies, and that was a place to start. In parallel, next to it, we uh, were building the incubator, uh, which is based in, the, in, in, in London, in which we incubate and develop our own brand. So we have four brands under development that will launch in 2021. One, one is the first one, which is launching imminently. And as we were developing these, these two areas of, of how to create this new next generation company in a way that you're creating it from a blank sheet of paper in the way that you want to create it with the values that you want to create. Uh, we started thinking relatively early on that to accelerate that, we wanted to do some larger acquisitions. And, and 
uh, as we started developing and, and firming up how to do that and how to make that happen is where we ended up uh, landing in these, these SPAC ideas and efficient way of, of, of building that, uh, that capability. The reason we, we do these kind of brands uh, that you mentioned are new, that have, if you look at all the brands in our portfolio, they have a certain uh, red thread or fil rouge between them, some commonality between them. And, and they are brands that have in its DNA um, a certain, not just perspective on beauty, but also a perspective relative to important social values like sustainability, inclusivity, responsibility, conscious entrepreneurship, which happen to be our values. And so we invest in things that reflect the values and the point of view we have relative to to the world and, and the industry. We don't pretend to change the world or, or we don't judge that there is other ways of, of doing things, but our way comes through this these, these lens on this DNA of these brands. So Michelle, tell me a little bit about how you see this kind of all working together, because you obviously have the SPAC, which is kind of targeted towards bigger acquisitions, you know, bigger change makers in the space. You have the ventures arm, which is looking at the smaller emerging players. And then you also are incubating brands. You're only one person. You have a pretty slim team. I'm wondering how, you know, what you have your eye on at any given moment. Well, I guess today. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is not just me. I mean, we have a slim team, um, but it's a relatively, it's a very capable team that can do lots of things. Most of the team, frankly, is devoted to to the incubation of brands today. <clears throat> um, a smaller team that is focused more on ventures. And of course, we have a, a tremendous team of people now uh, with Felipe Dutra, who comes as executive chairman of the company, as well as Dynamo Capital, which is the, the third sponsor, which has a whole team of, of analytics and analysis to help us identify um, the, right, the right opportunity. But the, the basic idea is, is what I said, these different pieces, if you put them together over time, the idea is that they will ladder up to this vision of a Something that is going to be built over time is not going to happen, you know, in one year or two. Is something that will be built over the years, over the decades, perhaps, to build this um, global um, beauty and wellness operating company. Do you think that, given your traditional experience, you were able to see the white space or see the trends that were coming to market? you know, faster than others? Because I mean, some of the things that you're talking about, especially with the brands that you're incubating, I believe, and also investing in have been in this better for you, more conscious consumer um, arena, which really accelerated in the last year. Yeah. I, well, I don't know if, if faster than others, I, I, I'd be a bit uh, arrogant to say that that is faster than others. What I, what I can say is that, you know, I've been, I mean, I live, me and my team, live and breathe this industry. I mean, this is what we do. This is our passion. This is what we are. We, we spend our time every day. Um, you know, many of us have uh, for for a hobby to visit as a four-hour and Ulta just to see brands and, and see what's going on. So it's a space that we live and breathe that we've operated for a long time. So yes, we have an ability through that or a knowledge, if you want, through that to identify white space and where the opportunities are. We also understand quite well within those opportunities where are uh, where are opportunities that are attractive from a structural economics, because there are places where they are, yes, there's white space opportunities, but they're not structurally attractive. And being now, uh, I guess, running uh, my own company and, 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 and being in a, in a place where, and where we have additional capital, we have the freedom uh, to pursue these opportunities with, with speed and with flexibility. 
So we, we're not dogmatic about how we how we pursue things. We're just looking to build uh, over time this, this this great company, partner with great founders, uh, invite others to be part of this dream of building this this company. We've been very fortunate uh, in the venture side, and, and we hope that that will be the case in the in the acquisition acquisition company side to partner with incredible founders that want to be part of this dream, that want to be part of building this new way of of um, of running a beauty and wellness business. You said to me a few days ago, uh, Michelle, that you know, beauty and wellness skills specifically are not easily transferable. Like you know, everybody thinks they can be a beauty entrepreneur. Everybody thinks they can be a founder, which we know with the amount of brands that are kind of coming to market at a at, at the pace it is. But you said to me that it wasn't transferable. What did you mean by that? Well, what I mean, I mean, uh, what I think is interesting, and I, and I can speak about these with with. As a, from a first-person standpoint, I, in the 25 years, I did not spend 25 years in beauty. I came into beauty later in my career, and I, I worked in very glamorous things like laundry detergents and healthcare and various and coffee and various other things in the past. And the, the, the peculiar beauty has a number of peculiarities. Number one, if you look at, and the, and the evidence is in, in who's winning. You know, if you look at the large conglomerates and who perform better, they tend to be uh, conglomerates that are pure play in beauty. Why? Because you, over time you develop this expertise. Beauty is part art, part science, you know, uh, part uh, understanding what is happening with consumers, understanding with trends, what are the right shades in makeup and what are the right textures. How do you encapsulate that into a way that is socially relevant, that you have the pulse on things? But it's very much a deep science. It's very much a, a, a business of details. Just for perspective, I mean, if you take the average kind of mass market makeup brand, uh, it has on average 750 to 1,000 SKUs, okay? So if you compare that to, I don't know, uh, beverages, uh, Coca-Cola or laundry detergents like Tide, you're talking about maybe a few dozen SKUs. So managing this level of complexity just as an example, just one example of the level of detail and complexity that you have to manage over time. And by the way, you are deleting 20 to 30% of these SKUs every year and launching new ones. So just in managing, managing the critical path schedule, the margins, the, the all the details that need to happen to be able to do that effectively requires a level of detail that is that is quite high. And that is just an example. I mean, there's many others in terms of how do you manage supply chain, how do you manage your PL. That's why... At Waldencast, when we originally created the name, the company is Waldencast Dreamers and Makers. It combines this ability of people to, on one hand, dream possibilities, dream creativity with this maker side, which is very deeply uh, science, business management based. And if you look at most, most if not all, and I would argue all, I can't find, I haven't been able to find yet one example of a successful successful, large beauty brand has always been the, the work of two people, a dreamer and a maker, a creator and an operator. And, and I think that characteristic of beauty is, is quite unique. So it takes time to learn. It's not impossible to learn. And as I said, I came into beauty later in my career, but it's, you can learn it, but you have to have as a starting point, a certain sensibility, a certain sensibility to to what this business is about. Um, you know, in my case, when I came into beauty, 
before, frankly, the first time I worked in beauty, I had no idea. You, you, if I stood in front of a, of a makeup shelf, I could figure out what a lipstick was, but that's about it. You know, I, I had no idea what what uh, what a makeup brand would look like when I started. But what I did have um, that helped me, I think, is a sensibility for things like art and design and photography and 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 color and architecture and things like that. It was just something that I loved. And as a consequence, this adaptation to his sensibility towards visual arts, if you want, helped me, helped me over time. So, Michelle, when you think about, you know, the space today, obviously it's so much more crowded than I think L'Oreal or Estee Lauder would have expected, you know, several, many decades ago. So... It seems as though before all this, like there were only two options for brands. One was to be acquired by a strategic or try to IPO themselves. So I guess from your perspective, was the SPAC a way to give brands another option to find another funnel to to growth? Yeah, indeed. I think it, it's what we're trying to create is, is, a, is a third option. I mean, what you're right. In, in, in the past, um, you know, the there is there's multiple reasons that we can go into, but there is a certain wall that hit that brands hit after some time. I mean, maybe it's in the call it a hundred to three hundred million dollar range. Most brands start to hit a wall in terms of growth, and and it, it, and, it, and it's at that time when uh, strategies used to target things for acquisition. It's around that more or less that range. Sometimes a bit earlier, and now increasingly earlier. So if you're a founder or you're a brand, you and you wanted to to continue to grow, you need to start being able. To, you need to start creating an operational scale that, as a single brand, is difficult to create. So, consequently, you had you know two or three options. One is sell to strategic, um, which obviously uh, a lot of brands have done. And, and you look at companies like L'Oreal or Stellar, etc., have been built on the basis of acquisitions. Many of them quite successful. Some of them not, but many of them quite successful. As a founder of a brand, that is great, but you're sacrificing the upside potential, right? You you let you let the strategic take the upside potential that way, and, and that's fine. And this is one way of doing it. Another one would be uh, to do your IPO, but do an IPO is first of all, there's not that many. Uh, it's difficult, um, and it's a bit complicated when you're a single brand because beauty overall is a highly resilient industry. But the individual categories are fluctuate. As we know today, you know, skincare is, is booming. Makeup is a little bit more difficult. That was a reverse five years ago, and it will be the reverse five years from now. So it is, it is a business that is cyclical. So having a single brand, single positioned, it's difficult to maintain that stability of earnings, stability of sales growth, etc. that is required of a, of a public company over time. And third, the other one was, you know, sell to private equity, in which... Um, you know, there's. I mean, I think the the there is some successes in in private equity investing in business in in the business of beauty, but the the record is a little bit mixed. Probably, perhaps my explanation is perhaps because of this expertise that needs to be developed over time. So, what we have is a third alternative, or fourth alternative, if you want, that is to offer founders and brands the opportunity to create that operational scale that is needed, but still be part of the upside growth of their brand, be in control of their brand uh, over the years and over time, maintain the brand DNA, but while at the same time creating the operational scale that is needed to go beyond um, where they are today. What do you think founders or early operators in their career don't know that they need to know? Because it seems as though, you know, 
there's so much money getting pushed into beauty right now and into wellness at such earlier stages. I mean, how do you decide or how do you get founders to decide and early operators to decide to go with you versus someone else? I mean, I think um, it's uh, there's multiple reasons. It depends on the brand and depends on, on what it is. I think, um, yes, there's a lot of money flowing into beauty. I think there's a, there's going to be a lot of disappointment as a consequence of that when there is not a good uh, track record of operational expertise. Um, what we offer to brands that is being very well received, and that's how we've been able to create value, is not just money, uh, but real operational expertise, not what I would call Excel operational expertise. Oh, your ratio should be these and your gross margin should be that. No, real operational expertise. Not just you need to increase your gross margin, but here's how. Here's how you manage your mix. Here's how you manage your product development. Uh, not just uh, you need to launch more, you need to launch into this or to that, but actually help in the product development process, help them anything from choose shades if you're in a makeup brand or textures or this is a right this is how you need to set up your supply chain or here's how you need to build a value over time in through different ways so what we provide is is real operational uh, expertise not just uh, not just funding and i think that's that's something that is being uh, that is being uh, very successful so far the great thing about beauty is is not a winner takes all market it's a, it's, a, it's a ginormous industry with a space for everybody, for space to create new, exciting opportunities. I am constantly celebrating the the victories of other brands that are not in my portfolio uh, because it's exciting, because they create excitement for the industry. They bring more consumers, etc. And um, you can always, I mean, technically, you could have as many brands as there are consumers because each brand speaks to a very different type of consumer, a different beauty archetype, et cetera. So it's, it's, there's no need in our, in my point of view, to be uh, competitive in the always of being. It's much better to be collaborative and celebrate each other and celebrate the, the successes of others because that creates excitement for the category, creates excitement for the business. And, and there's space for everybody to, to win. Do you believe it's become more collaborative in these last two years now that you're kind of not at a big company and maybe in the startup world a little bit more? Let me let me tell you something. It's that has been one of my most pleasant surprises, uh, which is um, the incredible level of support and collaboration and just collegial uh, type of of relationship that you see in the industry. It's just an amazing industry with amazing people. And uh, people really want to help each other. People really want to, uh, I mean, there's many brands that technically are competitive in theory, in the old way of thinking about it, but share things like, hey, you know, who is helping you in logistics or how do you do that? Um, even on the investment side, from an investor standpoint, in our case of welding gas, we like and we prefer to invest with others. Uh, we do not, we prefer not to be the, the only investor. We prefer to bring other investors along because we think that having more smart people around the table can can help us make better decisions, can help the brand better. So it's been a very, very collaborative environment. You mentioned a second ago, Michelle, about how in the weeds you are. And I'm just wondering, um, you know, some of your current portfolio clients like Hazier Weiss or First Let's Go Costa's Line, which just recently sold to Amaris, like how in the weeds are you? Like, tell me a little bit about what you think, you know, the challenges maybe of those brands have been 
and also the opportunities there are for them. Yeah, no, of course. I it depends by brand. I mean, it depends. Uh, it depends on what brands need because not all brands are are created the same. Not all founders are the same. Not all the the, the market conditions or the reality of each brand is the same. You know, um, if I take Carewise as a uh, as an example, without going to into a lot of detail, um, this is a brand that it's it's been around for ten years. It's an incredible brand. It's one of those uh, what I would I would call like. Almost undiscovered jewels is a brand that people that know it are extremely loyal, love the brand, but did not have a, a very big audience. Uh, frankly, as a consequence, uh, at times because it was not, it never raised, it raised money, but it never raised a lot of money. So it was always a little bit underfinanced, um, and as a consequence, kind of managed by by Kirsten, uh, Kirsten Kirswise, the founder. With a lot of love, with a lot of care, uh, but not with a lot of money to support a lot of things. So what we've done is beyond providing the funding with help in things like uh, recruitment of the team, help helping into uh, developing the, the the MPD pipeline, helping with supply chain, helping with uh, completely changing the way the e-com uh, ecom uh, tools work. Uh, there's many, many things in which in which we get involved. That is probably an example at the extreme of how involved uh, we've been. There's others. Uh, let's take Salve, for example, in Brazil, where we've helped them with brand positioning, we've helped them with product development, we've helped them with supply chain things. Um, so it depends on 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 the brand. Would you say that these brands do have the potential to, you know, be the next, you know, L'Oreal Paris or be the next, you know, Elf Beauty? You know, it seems as though, you know, they're definitely getting, you know, operationally getting set up that way, right? But is the audience there to be a big global worldwide brand? Yes, we only invest in brands that have the potential of being global successes. Uh, and that's one of our criteria for for investment. And will all of them be I hope so, you know, but the reality is that in this game of, of early stage, there is risks. I mean, anything from, you know, financial risk to team risk to market risk, et cetera, you, you, you're almost like making a bet today of what this could be if everything could work well. Um, so far, it's been, it's been a, a very pleasant, pleasant surprise. But yes, we invest only in brands that have that potential, you know, that, that have that uh, Different markets, you know. If if it takes uh, a brand like Kierwise, for example, it's a it's a luxury it's a luxury uh, brand. It's difficult to compare it to something like uh, Maybelline, for example, because it's a different different market, different consumer. But for the right position in terms of luxury makeup, we think this can be one of um, one of the next uh, incredible um, makeup brands that are success worldwide. What do you think is happening, I guess, from the consumer perspective? Because, you know, there's been a lot of changes on that front as well. You know, you're you're talking about brands that have a sustainable ethos or have, you know, a specific positioning. But then at the same time, there is this democratization happening when, you know, Sephora is going into Kohl's or Ulta is going to Target and everyone's shopping online. So, I mean, when you think about what you're looking for, how do you kind of satisfy all of those changes? <laughs> yeah, no, it's a, yes, it's a it's a super dynamic dynamic environment. I guess the place we start is we start with the consumer and the brand. We, we, I, I don't we don't think typically channel first. We think consumer and brand first. Um, partly because we believe in omni channel. We believe that what brands should be is should be 
distributed and sold where the consumer is and to make them available where the consumer is. What is most important is to start with, is there a consumer fit? Is there a consumer need? One thing I always say, even when we develop our own brands, is that the world doesn't really need another beauty brand. The world, the, brand, the, the world doesn't need another lipstick. The world doesn't need another mascara. What the world needs is brands that connect in meaningful ways with consumers. And when there is that meaningful connection, when there's a real, either emotional, physical, uh, functional need, then you have something that that you can you can work with. So we start with the consumer. I think yes, there's the obvious shift to e-com. There's this obvious shift to where more specialized retailers here in the U.S. Um, but at the end of the day, I mean, what is most important, what is enduring in a brand in the long term, is whether they have a connection to consumers that elicits a loyalty beyond reason. That that say, you know what, I love. Kirvice or I love uh, uh, any brand that is that is uh, that goes beyond reason. That goes um, that I, I love that brand for reasons that I almost can't explain. And that 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 is more important than where exactly they are sold at the moment, whether they're e-com or they are in this retailer or that retailer. So, do you think that's harder to do now with so many new brands coming to market? Yes and no. Uh, yes, in the sense that, yes, of course, there's a proliferation of brands. It's incredible the number of brands that are today and every day, you know, everybody's launching a brand. Every celebrity wants to launch a beauty brand. Every influencer wants to launch a beauty brand. What is important is then to ask first, is this bubblegum or is this a real brand? Is this is this a brand of the moment that is attached to a certain you know, notoriety of the moment or a certain position of the moment or a certain ingredient of the moment, or is this a brand that can endure over time? So in a sense, the principles are the same. What is more difficult is the noise. But then also uh, we have tools today that we did not have in the past that allows us to create a connection, a meaningful connection with the relevant consumers almost in a one-to-one basis, right? Almost in a one-to-one basis. So yes, there are things that make it more difficult. The noise makes it more difficult. But at the same time, the principles remain the same and we have tools that allow you to connect with consumers in, in, in efficient, relevant ways that we did not have in the past. When you think about you know what you're attracted to, and I know obviously we've touched on sustainability, we've touched on clean, we've also touched on, um, based on your recent acquisition, on precision skincare and like what that evolution is going to look like now that there's so much in skincare. So tell me a little bit about what you look for in Waldencast generally, and then more specifically, like what are you missing in your portfolio that you want now? Yeah. I mean, speaking, I think in both, if I speak for acquisition corp as well as ventures, uh, I mean, they're slightly different, of course, because of the scale, but there's some things in common. First, and it's going to sound silly, but it's going to reinforce what I said before. First of all, we look for brands. Uh, brands, and it's silly to say, oh, yeah, but there's a lot of brands. No, there really isn't a lot of brands. Uh, there's a lot of collections of products under one name. That's not a brand. Brands are brands that uh, brands are things that elicit, as I said, a certain emotional connection, relevance, etc. That it speaks to a universal need, that it speaks to a, a humanity in consumers. That products are not not that interesting. Second is a, a product, uh, an innovation pipeline that is not a one hit wonder. Is not a product. Is a collection of high quality, highly connecting connecting products and an ability to continue to innovate. Third. Uh, what I what we call a brand that has a very clear beauty point of view. What I what we mean by that is 
what is beauty for that brand is clear, is unique, and is appealing. Um, think about all, almost any great brand um, worldwide today. Let's, let's take a former brand, a brand that I used to work in, like L'Oreal Paris, for instance. I think you can take the biggest brand in the world, biggest brand in the United States. You can almost take any consumer around the world, ask them to close their eyes, and let's say, imagine a L'Oreal woman, and they can imagine something. They can they can envision something. I mean, the same you can say with with brands like Stellauder, or you can say with a brand like uh, many 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 brands. So that's a bit of what we mean by a beauty point of view. And there are some emerging brands that have some very clear point of view as well. So we look at that was that beauty point of view. So the first thing is all this area of brand product. Is there something meaningful here? The second one is the team, is, is, is the, 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 the founder, the team, the vision, is there a clarity, articulation of, of an aspiration, the ambition, is the, is the ambition there? Is the ambition to create something of, of, of meaning, is, is it there and do we have the team or can we complement that team to create what we, what we need to do? And then third, there comes more the business aspects of it, of course, you know, attractive structural economics and, and, and levers that we can pull to be able to, to drive that growth. And you look those at different scales. Obviously, when we are looking at early stage, you're really investing more on the basis of conviction, uh, more so than numbers or than or or or, or track record. It's more, yes, the numbers matter, of course, but is do you have the conviction behind this brand and these founders and this team? All right. Uh, in Walden Gas Acquisition Corp, of course, because of the scale and the size, we're not talking about whether the concept can be proven. Here, the concept is proving it's a successful brand, it's growing. So make, uh, you know, figures and, and, and numbers become become more important. Tell me a little bit about Revea, because obviously that is um, a brand that is very new to market. I mean, it goes with the trend of science-backed skincare, and we're kind of moving back towards to the experts, the doctors, the people who actually know skin. Um, what was it about them that really gave you that conviction? Two or three things, actually. First and foremost, the team. Uh, I think that was that was probably, if I were to to boil it down to the most important reason was the team. I think the founder Chas and 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 Kana and Tors are just incredible founders that understand not only the technical aspects of personalization, but importantly, the levers of beauty. Um, there are a number of personalization brands. I've talked to a number of them. You know. That is, is not is not uh, there's nothing wrong with them, but I think what we found with this with this team is an understanding of not just I can create an incredible algorithm to personalize, but I understand the levers of beauty. I understand that beauty is about seduction. That beauty is about uh, the right textures. That beauty is about the right uh, fragrance included in the in uh, fragrance or no fragrance included. All these other elements that are more emotional drivers of of preference. Um, and a team that we think can 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 pull it off. Second, I think, as I said, looked a lot of personalization in over time. This is a team that has been able to crack. Right? This is from the ones I've seen. The only one that has been able to crack uh, the link between personalization and uh, benefit, because what you can have, and I've seen examples of brands that personalize, but then when you dig below and says, okay, I understand you personalized, but what's the benefit? How, how is it different than buying just off-the-shelf products? And at times that has been 
either difficult to demonstrate or the link is a little bit vague. In this case, because of the background of the founders and the link towards real physiological characteristics of the skin, they are able to establish not just to personalize, but personalize on the right metrics that will result in the right results for consumers. So this is a brand that it's it's uh, has uh, not just is technically very sound, but also, as I said, has the right team and, and can pull the right levers of beauty to, to make it appealing, compelling, seductive, interesting, aspirational, etc. How would you say that you want the Walden Cast portfolio to evolve? Like, what is it that you're looking for next? Well, it's difficult to say. We're looking at different different type of companies or different type of businesses. What we what we do know, what I do believe, is that over the years, over time, what we want to build is a well balanced portfolio. What do I mean by that? A well balanced in terms of categories, well balanced in terms of price positioning, well balanced in terms of geographies. You know, for now, we've been focused in North America and Europe and a bit of Latin America. We haven't touched Asia, we haven't touched China yet, etc. So our aspiration is that over the years is we will build a balanced global uh, portfolio. Why? For the reason that I, where we started a bit, because beauty is an incredibly resilient, in, resilient business and, and grow and attractive, but the individual pockets within beauty fluctuate over time. Right? So, so you want to have a portfolio that is like that. Um, that said, all of those brands um, will always start with what is important to us as individuals and start as important as a world gas, which is brands that have a certain DNA uh, where conscious entrepreneurship and a responsibility to the world and their communities is in its DNA, in its part of, uh, of how they're built. We want to be the magnet of, we want to be the magnet for those type of brands, for those type of founders, founders that in a sense, want to have an impact, change the world a little bit, change the industry a little bit to make it more sustainable, more inclusive, more responsible. Do you think the standard of beauty today has changed? Because I mean, some of the things that you're talking about, I mean, I don't think, you know, when I was a teenager, even 10 years ago, we would be talking about some of these things like inclusive shade foundation or um, textured hair care, or, you know, they were things, but they were things on the fringes. They weren't the main message. So what would you say about that? I, I think they absolutely have changed. I think, I think, um, and I would say things like shade range or textured hair, that are just the, the, the tip of the iceberg. I think, um, it's interesting. I have I, I, I am I, I have the benefit of, of speaking with lots of uh, consumers, particularly young consumers, who we do research with, and and I have two of them at home actually, two 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 girls that are you know in the early twenties uh, at home. Happy to, to 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 have two of them as as great case studies. Is what they believe beauty is is very fundamentally different than what I would say uh, the prior generation. I think these. This idea of being inclusive, this idea of being uh, accepting, not only accepting, but I wouldn't even say accepting, I would say uh, desire for being included and being inclusive to be uh, unique, but at the same time part of a community is, is, is very important. Um, so as a consequence, as I said, the, the, the point of view of beauty is changed. And I think one of the challenges that historical brands or brands that have been built some years ago is exactly that, which is they are strongly associated with a certain specific 
point of view on beauty. And that point of view on beauty, especially, I believe, for young consumers, is less relevant. And for those brands, I believe, it's very difficult when you are known for certain type of point of view to evolve. It's not impossible, but it's difficult. Last question for you, Michelle. And I obviously can ask you this because you came from big beauty. But what do you think the issue is right now in terms of that so many emerging brands are taking market share away from, you know, the L'Oreal's and Estee Lauder's and, and the Unilever's of the world. It really seems like, you know, no matter how big they are, you know, they have somebody biting at their, you know, at their feet. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I mean, I've been, I've been on the other side. I'd say, I mean, I don't think there's a blanket statement necessarily that all brands or all big companies are, are are losing share. In fact, we see some of them still gaining share. Yes, true, primarily through acquisition of new brands, of these emerging brands, and you know, the the head start they have in, in, in places like China, for example. But I'd say it's a little bit of what we discussed. I think that when you're big, it's difficult to maintain and grow uh, that that uh, growth over time. But if I were to summarize in a more step back at the at the more strategy level or the kind of long-term level is, if you think about it, the, the sources of competitive advantage for big incumbents historically fell into three areas. Um, number one is big advertising budgets, you know, big, big marketing budgets. And in the old days, which seem prehistory now, where if you wanted to launch a brand uh, from scratch, you were an entrepreneur that wants to launch a brand, you have to have deep pockets to be able to have a television campaign or a print campaign in, in Vogue and Glamour and places like that. And that was very difficult. You know, that was very difficult to do. Today, of course, with digital marketing, precision advertising, influencer marketing, CRM, all those things, you can very modular start creating a, a following for for your brand and 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 do it and you know, build it over time. That's the first thing. The second thing I'd say distribution. Distribution has fundamentally changed, right? With the difficulties of department stores and less traffic in drug stores and and so on and so forth. And historically these brands have a certain, I don't want to say lock, but a certain um, preponderance of, of, of distribution, right? Um, now, today, again, through a direct-to-consumer e-com site, you can launch a, a brand, create an audience, and, and get to a, and a scale, a very respectable scale, without having to uh, unseat anybody out of their position in a, in a brick-and-mortar door. And as we all know, as time has gone by and, and retailers have had difficulties and need for differentiation and need for growth, they invited in these new emerging brands further eroding the, the, the hold of, of, of incomes into, into the distribution. And then lastly, I think uh, big incumbents have a historical advantage in the fact that they had the deep pockets to invest very significant amounts of money in R&D, product development, uh, manufacturing facilities, distribution centers, et cetera, et cetera. Today, um, probably starting in the 80s and 90s, I'd, I'd say, but Certainly, certainly is, is a phenomenon today. You can source, if you're an emerging entrepreneur, you can source very high quality product, many times rivaling the, the products that, that incumbents can create uh, from third-party manufacturers, have third-party logistics, have open development, etc., and create products that are quite competitive uh, that way. So the barriers to entry in general have, have dropped. All of that happening while at the same time consumer preference are changing, mistrust of big brands, a need to 
to be more of a tribal consumer that identifies with self with certain with certain things. So I mean, I think all of these things have contributed to what what's happening in the market, and just it's going to continue to happen. I think it's just going to continue to to move in that direction. Thank you so much, Michelle. It was wonderful having you today. I, I could have kept you here for much longer, but um, this is a great conversation. Thank you for having me here, Priya. It's a pleasure always. Thanks for tuning into the Glossy Beauty Podcast. Our theme music is by Otis McDonald. And if you know someone or more than one who should be listening to the Glossy Beauty Podcast, please have them subscribe. See you next week. Thank you.